Just like most episodes, this one contains strong language. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and guests and in no way represent the state of Oklahoma, the Oklahoma Historical Society, or the Oklahoma State Historic Preservation Office. Welcome to the Musings of an ADD Mind podcast. This is your host, Jack, and I have the ADD Mind. I always think all of my guests are special, but this guest is super duper extra special because it's the father of my my other podcast co-host, Kenyatta. And so without, without Victor, Kenyatta would not be here to keep me in line. So I appreciate you... Uh, Having the, as we talked about on the very first episode of Kenyatta and Jack Save the World, a fruitful honeymoon. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, this is uh, Kenyatta's dad, Victor. Uh, thanks for coming on. And why don't you, I guess, give just a quick rundown sort of, of what's going on, and then we can jump into your time in the Air Force. Well, Jack, thanks for having me on today. I really was kind of surprised that you'd want to talk to some old guy like me about <laughs> what was happening and everything. But but you know what? Anytime I have an opportunity to share war stories or, you know, old people like to share stories that they did before because they got more time ahead behind them than they do ahead of them. Right, so, right. <laughs> so it's always a good time anyway. But, but surely I do appreciate the opportunity to be able to... Uh, to, to share uh, whatever experiences that I had in my life and, and, and with my only child, uh, Kenyatta, it, it was really, it's really a good time. And, and I mean, I'm enjoying it still. I'm enjoying yeah. it very much as, as it is. So, so you can have at it, sir. I'm there for you to ask questions, uh, to, to satisfy any sort of inquiries you might have about me or about the air force in general for that matter because in essence i'm still part of the air force i do work for the air force as a civilian now right yeah um that's my son does the same thing he's a air force veteran just got out september 1st maybe of last year oh okay and now he's a civilian contractor for the air force i wish i could tell you what he does but he's not at liberty to inform me Oh, it's one of those jobs that if he had to tell you, he would have to kill you. Actually, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well. <laughs> he, he has actually said that when you go on a date with somebody, that that's kind of a pain in the butt. Because they'll ask, well, what do you do? And he's like, I can't tell you. <laughs> and it sounds, it sounds like he's, you know, lying. But in his case, he's not. But this isn't about my son. This is about you. So um, we can jump in. First of all, were you drafted? And if not, how old were you when you uh, enlisted? Oh, well, that's, that's a little bit of a story. I mean, uh, <laughs> Well, let, that's why you're here. Well, I mean, when I, uh, I was not drafted. I did have a draft card, as a matter of fact. That was 1A, so I could have been drafted. But right. uh, at that particular time in my life, I was actually under indictment for second-degree robbery. Wow. Yeah, yeah, I was un- in an indictment. And uh, I had already applied to the Air Force to 
to sign up for them to enlist once I graduated from high school. But they couldn't take me until after my court case had been decided. Okay. And so once my court case was decided in 1971, I raced my little behind down to the recruiter and I said, send me on the first thing hot going out of Buffalo, New York to take me to San Antonio, Texas and sign me up. So originally I wanted to go into uh, aircraft maintenance, avionics as a matter of fact. Okay. Is what I, I wanted to do. But um, because I, I had pretty high AQE scores across the board, so I could do anything I wanted to do more than anything else. But I, I, I did not want to risk spending another day in Buffalo, New York in 1971 getting nailed for something I didn't do. Okay, yeah, that makes so, perfect sense. And so I got out of, I got out of Buffalo in, in October of 1971 and went into the general Air Force field at that time. And I'll save what I ended up being for a little bit later. And okay. So what that <laughs> actually was. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fine. That's fine. Um, you know, it's sort of funny because my father obviously was in the Air Force. And all of his friends were getting drafted. And my dad thought, I do not want to be in the Marines or the Army. I better take this in my own hands and go enlist in the Air Force. <laughs> So I, I do not blame you for at that time frame of jumping into the Air Force as opposed to the uh, the other branches, because your chances of going to Vietnam were a lot less in the Air Force. Not well, zero. I'm not saying that. Just less. You're, you're absolutely right. But in, in my particular case there, both my mother and my father were both uh, veterans of the Air Force. Oh, well, yeah, you had to at that point. So, and, and and on top of that, I had been a cadet in Civil Air Patrol as well. Oh. Yeah. yeah. Do you, so do you I, still fly? Oh, well, not now. I don't, not now? I don't, no, I don't fly now. I, I flew when I was in when I was in the Air Force, and well, from, 70, from 79 to 94, I actually flew okay. on AWACS. So, but... Uh, but prior to that, I had a, a different jobs mm -hmm. that I'll I'll share with you a little bit later. But okay, okay. And and then after the fact, after I quit flying, uh, I had different jobs too. So well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it is like it is in in any kind of military service. You 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 move between different jobs depending upon what uh, what the requirement is in the service at that particular time right. or or what opportunities are allotted to you at that time. So So if I remember correctly, you were got stationed at Tinker two separate times. Am I remembering what Kenyatta told me correctly? That that's correct. Um my first duty station after I came out of basic training in uh, in nineteen seventy one was in December of seventy one at Tinker Air Force Base. And and the story goes back, and and this may not be, this may not be a little, how should I say, politically correct at this point. Okay. <laughs> but I remember quite distinctly when I went through basic training, and they gave us all these uh, presentations on what jobs you could have in the Air Force. 
And one of the jobs that they, they wanted me to go into was uh, Air Force uh, Electronic Security Service. And, and they don't use that term right now anymore. But uh, they, they kind of built this up as that uh, my first duty station would be overseas. And as most people didn't do that when they came out of tech school, they never went overseas initially. But my first duty station from this job would be overseas. And I'd have a, it even showed pictures of people surfing in Japan. <laughs> as as this is going to get you to go. So all you need to do is to fill out this top secret paperwork, <laughs> which, which, uh, needless to say, I couldn't fill it all out, so I didn't qualify for it. Right. So uh, they they would post on the on the bulletin board uh, in basic training. Here are the jobs that people are being assigned to in 1971. So we were still in Vietnam at that time. Right. So I looked at my name. I found my name on the listing there, and it said, okay, Edwards Victor uh, 702. And that was the Air Force specialty code. Okay. So I had no idea what a 702 was at that time. So I went to my, uh, my military training person. He was a staff sergeant. Uh, and I said, well, what's a 702? sir. He looked at me and he said, it with a little crack on a smile, he said, titless waff. <laughs> oh, okay, so let me explain what a, what a say, waff yeah. is. Uh, yeah, that, that might be important for the listeners to know. <laughs> a waff is at that particular time in the, uh, in the Air Force and in the U.S., a waff was Women Air Force. Oh, it was actually separate from the regular Air Force itself. Okay. Just like, just like in the Army, they had WACs, Women Air Corps, uh, Women uh, Army Corps. Right. So all of those up until 1973 were looked to be as separate entities, almost like auxiliaries of the male portion of the services. Okay. They, they were integrated after 1973 into the regular Air Force so that there was no such thing after 1973 as women Air Force or in the Army as women Army Corps. Okay. Didn't exist. And, and, and that, was the, that was a good thing because they were treated differently. They were given different rules. Right. Um, they were supposed to be treated eventually, and that's what it got to at this point, potentially, as the same as their male counterparts. Right. So his, his uh, misogynistic reproach was supposed to be, you're going to do a job that a woman does, but <laughs> you don't have the same equipment as a woman. Right, right, yeah. <laughs> so I was an administrative specialist, for the first few years of my time in the Air Force. And and even go even further, anything that wasn't an operational type job in the Air Force back in 1971 was covered by people who were in the administrative career field. Right. I'm going to interrupt you because you just filled in an important part 
of me knowing something about my father. Uh, he passed away in 2003, so I cannot ask him this. Mm-hmm. He also was in that uh, same career field. My dad was an admin, and actually when he retired, he was the uh, chief admin uh, NCO for Tinker's Commander, for the base commander. Oh, okay. okay. He just never got out of it like apparently you did. So you have just taught me... I've learned something new about my dad's Air Force career <laughs> that I did not know. So that in itself is makes me incredibly happy that you were on. Because now I know something a little more about my dad's history. So thank you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, later, I'll, I'll be, and, and just to let you know that uh, the job I was actually in as a 702 at that time was base billeting. Oh, or what you would refer to as lodging today. Yes. So, or what you would refer to as, uh, how should I say, uh, uh, hotel management. Okay, right, right, yeah, because all bases have the, the officer hotel and the enlisted hotel. <laughs> that's correct. And and that's what I did for the first few years of, of my career was, actually, I, I stood behind a... Uh, the counter, I checked people in to uh, quarters. I checked them out when they left, and, and that's what I did. And I would <laughs> work the telephone. I was a telephone operator while I was there to work that so I could connect them to outside lines. And, and outside lines could be connected to them when they called in. Right. And, and when, when I got married and when uh, Kenyatta was born, that's what I was doing. That's and I would imagine, since you said you were a tinker, I probably know where <laughs> those hotels were. Well, they're, they're still there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> they, they've, been, they've been rehabbed since that time. Right. But I remember uh, quite clearly pulling cords out, plugging them into the switchboard, and connecting people that would call in to about, what, four different uh, lines that we had coming into Right, the, uh, the billeting office, and being able to connect people to their outside line, which, by the way, they had to pay twenty-five cents a night to be able to get phone service. Extended. Wow! <laughs> I mean, they only paid two dollars a night to live there. So, yeah. Ho- hopefully, the quarter didn't break anybody. <laughs> I, I hope not. I mean, uh, and the two the, the two bucks a night didn't break anybody either. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah. So were you uh, strictly like at the enlisted hotel, or were you officer, or was it a combination of the oh, two? Oh, oh, a combination of the two. I mean, what I did was I would check both enlisted and officers into their assigned quarters. Mm-hmm. And an air crew would come in, and air crew was a little bit different than officers by themselves or enlisted by themselves. Aircrew often wanted to be quartered together. Right. Now, now, what I mean by quartered together, they wanted to be either on base or they wanted to be off base. So, in other words, their, their intent was we need to maintain crew integrity. Right, right, you know, yeah. We don't want the enlisted people on base or the officers on base and the other half of the crew in another place. We want them either in one place or everybody's off base. Yeah, yeah. And as somebody who still lives in Midwest City, there may only be one 
hotel that you might have sent them that's still around in Midwest City <laughs> from that time frame, maybe. Planet um, Motel? <laughs> yeah, it's still there, just a different name. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I mean, that was one of the places we set up to was Planet Motel. Yeah, the the bowling alley is still, a, the Planet Bowling Alley is still across the street from it. Yeah. It's still there, so, oh, yeah. Wow. Okay, all right. Jeez, well, I did that job from 71 till about uh, 1975. Okay, and so is that when you, well, obviously, you cross-trained, I guess, got a new job, and where did I you did. go from there? I did. I, I cross-trained. I went to NCO Leadership School, and um, uh, funny thing is that I, I ended up being an honor graduate of NCO Leadership School, and the uh, the commanding general of Oklahoma City ALC decided, hey, I need a guy to replace the person that's leaving my shop. I want this guy to come and replace him. So I ended up working for a general officer there at Oklahoma City uh, Air Logistics Center. Okay. I left the billeting office. Uh, I went to work for them because I had ended up being the, uh, the honor graduate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, leadership school. This was in 1975, and uh, and it was an entirely different kind of thing altogether. I left billeting office and I went to work for a general officer, running his his conference room. Okay, and uh, it was a whole new step up for me altogether. Uh, I I mean, I'm just a little buck sergeant at this point. I I'm right. A, I'm a an E5 select maybe. And uh, I'm working for a two-star general. <laughs> that, that I would say the stress level was probably slightly different. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you, you, you might think it was, <laughs> just a bit. Uh, um, I, was, uh, I, I, I was newly married at that point. Um, I, I had a, a, a brand new baby, and, and I think her name was Kenyatta, if I may call. Yeah, yeah, she's doing a lot of work trying to save the world. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. I heard, I heard she was doing something like that. She does good work. Oh, my good. It's good to hear. But yeah, I was, I, I, I was brand new, kind of doing it, and I was working on, and I moved up to that job, um, and it was, uh, it was very interesting. I did that job maybe about, uh, about a year and a half. Okay. Yeah, until about 76. And I met a lot of people, a lot of high-ranking individuals. Um, I got a sense of what uh, senior leaders do in in uh, in the jobs that they have assigned to them. Uh-huh. And it, it was really an eye-opener for me as just a, a little E4 trying to figure out what the world was all about. Uh, and I also, in all of that, decided that my next step in in doing something was going to be going to fly with AWACS because it was just in its exception, inception period at that time, in 1975, uh, 76 time period. So do you feel that um, working in that uh, office environment with so many, you know, flag officers and high-ranking people. Do you feel that later on in your career it made you a better leader because you kind of had a class on how to lead without having a class on how to lead? Um, uh, it, in essence, yes. I think it was. It, it gave me some insight on some of the things they'd have to do because 
in, in the course of my duties at that time, I would actually sit behind the display screen of a uh, uh, when the general would be having a a conference with a number of his senior leaders that were there at the ALC, okay. and I could hear I could hear everything that was going on. I could see hear the discussions that were happening. I could hear uh, how some people were reluctant to give their opinion. Uh, it, but but it gave me a, a kind of viewpoint concerning what what leaders from a mid level and a high level have to deal with in trying to come to decisions and what was what was going on at that time. And so even though I was just a a, a buck sergeant, I was just an E four, way below what they were. It, it did give me an insight on maybe this is how I want to do something. And I wasn't even thinking about what I would be like once I got the chief master sergeant later on. Right. I mean, that would be years and years from there. Well, generally, when you're at E4, you don't think about, you know, your days when you're at E8, E9. <laughs> no. <laughs> you know? you're, you're just trying to make it day to day. Yeah. You're, you're thinking, if I make it to E5, I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> You're yeah, right. no, I, I understand. I was once a, a lowly E4 myself. Yes. And then I stopped. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so, obvious, I'm, I'm assuming, since you mentioned it earlier, that you applied for AWACS school or, you know, for your position involved in that and was accepted. And how long uh, was, like, the school for to learn that? Because I guess it was new at the time, so... You were probably one of the first that went through. <laughs> well, it it wasn't as easy as I just said. Um, uh, there were some other steps that I had to take in between. Okay. For example, I had to move to a different career field altogether. And the career field was aerospace control and warning systems technician. And there were other positions that I had to have before I could get into aviation service. Okay. And an AWACS uh, at that particular time was wasn't even uh, initial operational capability until 1977. And when I left the job I was doing there at Oklahoma City ALC, that was in 1976 to go to tech school for aerospace control and warning systems technician. Okay. So essentially, I had to start all over. Over. Again. Yeah, what I had been doing before, in order to get to that goal of being an air crew member on board AWACS. Yeah, I think a lot of times people that aren't in the military don't realize how often someone in the military, if they do want to learn a new career field, you know, you have to start over at the beginning. It's not a oh hey, you can just sort of learn this. It's no, you got to go and. Go and be in school with E1s and E2s and start over. And I don't think people realize that if well, you've never been affiliated with the military. Well, in this particular case here, um, you're absolutely right. Uh, the, when I went to tech school, I did go to tech school with E1s, E2s, uh, people who didn't know, if I can say, shit from Shinola. <laughs> they had just they just came into the Air Force where I was... Uh, an E-4, an E-5 coming into the Air Force. I already knew what the Air Force is all about. Right. And I had to go back and do the same thing that they were going for their three-level qualification 
or, or semi-skilled qualification in the Air Force, I had to go back and do the same thing from a tech school standpoint to learn all of that all over again. So, uh, so again, it's starting all over again. But yeah. once I got out of tech school, then things kind of changed a little bit for me. I still kept my rank, mind you. Yes. And so I didn't lose that. And uh, I still have everything that I already knew about the Air Force at that point. So I didn't lose any of that. And so the Air Force gives you some, uh, some, uh, how shall I say, some a little bit of, of, of caring along that lines there. So you can still get promoted mm-hmm. in the career field, uh, even though you're expected to accelerate your your understanding of the career field as a higher ranking individual. Right, yeah. Um, when I went through uh, my tech school in the Army, there were two guys that were uh, NCOs that were coming and retraining in, in mine. And so at, you know, at 4 o'clock when we were done with school, you know, we had a, a drill sergeant that went and marched us back over to Papa Company, and they got to go and sleep in the uh, basically apartments, <laughs> you know, because they were E5s and E6s. But um, that was always sort of interesting to watch how the instructors treated them, just slightly different, <laughs> you know, than than us. But that's to be expected. We were, you know, we were babies. <laughs> so, right. yeah, so I, I have sort of seen that from the other side. Well, yeah. And and that and that's a good and that's a good analogy. That's about the same way it worked for those of us who had to go back through tech school, and we were going back through tech school when we had E ones and E twos going through tech school, same time in at Keesler Air Force Base. Where's 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 that at? Well, what state is uh, Biloxi, Mississippi? Oh, that was not humid in any way, shape, or form. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, from what people tell me, from who had been down to Biloxi years and years before, the uh, uh, the neighborhood, the atmosphere was a whole lot better, um, a whole lot less, how shall I say, uh, temperate. Uh, the, the people down there really uh, tolerated you a lot more when I was there than previously. Previous years. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, actually... Since we're sort of on the subject, did you ever feel um, did you ever feel that there was any sort of like discrimination or anything when you were in the Air Force, especially in that time frame, or not? Um, and if you don't want to answer, you don't have to. Uh, I'm just sort of curious if you ever felt that you were treated different. In one instance, I was okay, and uh, I was an E5 at the time, and I worked for uh, the general. Uh, when I was there at Oklahoma City LC, mm-hmm. and I went to a Consolidated Base Personnel Office, CVPO. I don't know if you ever heard that term before. I, I haven't. Okay. Well, in the military, it's now called the MPF, Military Personnel Center. Okay. Okay. Yeah, that that's, would have been what it was called when I was in. And back in the day, uh, when I was in, it was called Consolidated Base Personnel Office. And so I went there to ask a question of one of my uh, training supervisors there about upgrading to uh, a different skill level. And this this young white woman who was at the time probably not 
uh, not more older than I was. I was about, you see, I was E5 or E4, E5 at the time, maybe about 20, 22 years old. I'd been married for maybe about three years. Uh-huh. And, and I asked her this question. And she said, okay, well, I'll find out about it. And she picked up the phone and she said, well, and, and I don't know if she said it on purpose or whether or not she, uh, actually, I think she never really thought about it. And she got on this phone and she said, well, you know, I've got this boy here who wants to know about training so-and-so. And I took immediate offense to it because I'm a grown-ass man. Yeah. And... I'm nobody's boy. Right. And, and I felt very offended by it. And, and at that particular time, it was still something that you heard in Oklahoma that uh, grown black men were referred to as boy. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I, and I was not happy with it whatsoever. And I told her that to that extent. And I turned around and left and I went back to my workstation. And... Um, the civilian, the, the senior civilian person that I usually worked with, when I talked with him about it, he kind of brushed it off and said it was, you took it too personally. She didn't really mean anything by it. Yeah. And, and I felt like that he didn't support me in it whatsoever. And I said, okay, fine. And I let it go at that point. And I said, okay, I, I know where you're coming from. Now, yeah, and let me give you some background on on him. It was his name was Mr. Rip was Ripple. I can't remember his first name, but when they closed down uh, Rome Air Logistics Center, which is at which was at Griffiths Air Force Base in New York, they moved a bunch of people from uh, from Rome, New York, to different air logistics centers across the country. Right, and he got he got moved with a number of other people to. Oklahoma City, and he was kind of like the senior chief of staff for the general, you might say, the senior civilian chief of staff for okay. the general. So he was he was high up in there, but he had worked all his life there in in Griffiths before he came to Oklahoma City, and so um, I didn't understand at the time. I was very much hurt by the fact that he didn't support me in any of this. And I just kind of said, okay, fine. He was just one of those people that I marked off to the side and said, you don't understand. You don't, you want to take the side of this, this, this white young woman that didn't know any better, which in essence, she should have known better. She's gone. She had gone to the same kind of social actions training that I went to years before. And apparently referring to a young black man, as a boy, it's not something that you do lightly, and right, yeah. it kind of it kind of stung to me. It really did. Oh, I so, I understand completely. I I think it almost would have been weird had it not <laughs> stung. And I I said, okay, fine, all right. I mean, and, and there were a number, and there were different things that that at that particular time in in the Air Force life that you kind of. You, you just kind of took in and you kind of swallowed and you moved on. Right. Yeah. Yeah. To be able to do your job and do what you need to do. Yeah. I am uh, related. I always liked growing up on uh, Air Force bases, 
Because, as you know, you are, you are in no way, shape, or form in control of where you live. It is a sign. That's correct. And so, as a kid, I learned that if I was going to have friends that like, you know, play football, do sports, play baseball, whatever, whoever, who, if they were a boy and they wanted to play football, you were going to be friends. <laughs> you know, it didn't matter. And I feel that... Yeah. I feel that as an adult, it has made me a better person because I grew up with everybody. Sure. So I feel that it has made me a a better adult. And when I was doing uh, uh, the podcast, when I first had Kenyatta on as a guest, that was one of the things that I wanted sort of to know looking back. Yeah, I liked growing up on an Air Force base, but I was also a white boy. (laughs) You know, and I wanted to know, maybe Kenyatta had a slightly different experience than I did. Sure. And so that was sort of what made me uh, initially want to have her on the show, because I wanted to know the different experience that people had. And then, of course, you know, we obviously hit it off. <laughs> well, <laughs> I'm talking. And, yeah, and that's good. I, and, and I can see how you're, you're a very gregarious person. Uh you're a very friendly individual. I mean, you, you make folks feel very comfortable being with you. Well, thank you. And, and, and I can see that right away just by talking with you and all of this. So, Well, thank you. I, I mean, well, but, but uh, unfortunately, there's a number of people that we walk across in life, black or white, that, that just don't have that uh, and just yeah. can't do that and can't, and can't deal with it, whatever it might be. So... You know, I, I, from that standpoint, it, it makes it easy to talk with and, and well, to share you. <laughs> with you those things that, that, that happened in my life. Uh, some things that I don't particularly have fond memories of. Yeah. But, but, but that's what life's all about is it, it, you have some fine memory, fond memories and, and other times you, you don't. So. Right, right. Yeah, but, exactly. But, but, but life is life. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I guess let's move on from sort of <laughs> that part of it. And mm-hmm. so you you finally have gone through the various steps and you're getting to uh, go on the AWACS plane. Mm-hmm. What was like the first couple of flights that you're doing the job, not in school and everything? Were you somewhat nervous about that or had school been enough that you were just like, yeah, let's go. Let's do this thing. <laughs> I, I think it's the latter what you're talking about. The latter. Let's let's go. Let's do this thing, and uh, because to some to some extent, when I was assigned after I went to tech school, I went to uh, uh, Syracuse and the 21st Air Defense Squadron, and okay. I spent I spent some time about a year or so there working in a, a Sage unit, and Sage means semi-automated ground environment. Okay, and and it's a strategic uh, air defense system that the United States built up from 1959 through 1974. Okay, and uh, it, it it was supposed to be uh, a, a a a centralized unit which pulled in all of uh, radar units from around it, and will pull it in. Uh, and it would digitize all of that information and have a command center there that would decide how they were going to defend that particular region of the United States during the Cold War. 
Okay. And and I worked there from 1977 when I left tech school to uh, 1978, late 1978, when I went up to Alaska. And, and, and so that was the second uh, assignment that I would have before I would go to, to uh, Tinker and work in AWACS. So, <clears throat> excuse me, I worked as a, an air defense identification technician. And, and my job was to uh, see, uh, to track objects that were flying into the United States airspace and correlate them with uh, flight, plan, flight plans that, okay. would be, that would be passed on to us from uh, a civilian organization called New York Air Movements Section to the SAGE unit. So what this meant that was every civilian aircraft flying into air, air for, I mean, into uh, United States airspace from right. overseas had to have a flight plan, and that flight plan had to correlate with the position that aircraft was at at that time. Right. Yeah. And that position had to be within a certain uh, number of miles, plus or minus of the route that traffic was taken. Otherwise, we would declare it as unknown and we would scramble interceptors on it. And that's what I did when I was there at uh, at Syracuse, at Sage. Yeah, and that was in the smack dab in the middle of the Cold War, so I imagine so, occasionally they were uh, from the USSR. <laughs> I, well, more... More often than not. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> we had different designations for them as well. Um, for certain Soviet aircraft that were Soviet aircraft that had a declared uh, uh, flight plan and those Soviet aircraft that had no declared flight plan. Right. <laughs> they were they're different categories and they were treated very differently. Very differently, yeah. <laughs> so... Uh, and, 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 and when you were in air, and when you were in, uh, United States airspace, you were supposed to squawk, and that's just a term that we use in air defense, is an electronic device on board the aircraft that's supposed to send out a dis- discrete code to identify who you were. Electronic code. Right. All aircraft today do that. Uh, and that same code also s- tells what altitude that they're at. Well, back then, not all aircraft had the capability of being able to, well, SAGE didn't have the capability of interpreting uh, what altitude an aircraft was at. So there was identification code that they would squawk, and, and it wasn't discrete as it is now. So it was kind of like something like 3200, for example, and... And the Soviet aircraft didn't have the capability of squawking. They would squawk 3200, but there was no known uh, flight plan that we could correlate them against. So in that particular case there, we would have to declare them as unknown, uh, uh, pending, identification unknown. In order to qualify the identification, we'd have to have an F-106 go out there and find out who the hell they were. (laughs) Right, yeah. Yeah, fun, uh, uh, fun times. I'm sure. <laughs> oh yeah, it would raise the blood pressure quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, because you do not want to be uh, 
sort of in military terms, the tip of the spear. <laughs> we have had instances, at least I remember one instance in which a, one, a C-130 was flying from, uh, 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 let me see, from Spain into, uh, into uh, New York airspace. That's where we're at. And uh, they, weren't, they weren't squawking the proper codes. And uh, they weren't answering any uh, any resp- any inquiries uh, via radio on who they were, and it ended up being a Marine Corps C-130. That sounds like the Marines. <laughs> and and as their punishment, two months later, they were sent to our to our Sage organization to take a tour of who we were and why we did it. <laughs> They were not happy. <laughs> the, the flight crew was not happy. But we explained to them, we explained to them because you didn't squawk the proper codes, you were late because there were a certain period of time that you had to be inside of your flight plan. The right. flight plan moved along the route <laughs> at the same time the aircraft supposedly was doing as well. If you was outside that box, you weren't correlated with that flight plan. Yeah, 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 for sure. So, but, um, but, if, but but anyway, that's just a, that's a minor <laughs> part in all of this here as well. We can yeah. move on to whatever you want. Yeah, to, yeah. Now, if, so. if you're a civilian, you don't understand just how you can go from everything's fine to oh my gosh, this is on the radar or you know whatever, and it's not supposed to be. Yeah, everybody get ready. And then it turns out that it is, in fact, not Iraq coming over the Kuwaiti borders. It's just a shit ton of camels. Yes. Yes. Well, I mean, anytime we have to scramble an aircraft to go out over the water to find out who somebody is, is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and at the time, in, in 1977 time period, everybody, I mean, we would put this over the loudspeaker across the entire uh, uh, reaching control center and let them know that we've got something out there that is outside of a flight plan and we don't know who it is until and, and the 106 goes out there and identifies it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, yeah. I mean, <laughs> somebody's got to do it, right? Because you have to make sure. Sure. So sure. yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess we're about at the point to where. Um, Kenyatta and I intersect when you came uh, back to Tinker. Now, I didn't get there until 1983, mm-hmm. but um, obviously it, you know, worked out. Uh, it's so weird as a, a brat to have gone to elementary school and graduate with somebody, you know, as a military brat. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at Tinker, there's probably a good seven or eight people that graduated with Kenyatta and I. That we went to elementary school with. Oh yeah. And, yeah. Which is which is different. But so you make it to Tinker, you're on AWACS, and that's where you uh, I guess AWACS affiliated or AWACS jobs is what you stayed in the rest of your time in, or Yes. I, I flew with AWACS from uh, uh, from nineteen seventy nine. I got my wings then. Um, and I left AWACS in nineteen ninety four. Okay, yeah. And yeah. I uh, and I flew um, uh, 3,100 flying hours. Okay. Uh, with with AWACS, I flew about 1,800 hours as an instructor or as a CFI. 
Okay. Now, a, C, a CFI is a standardization evaluation flight examiner. So what that meant was that I would fly on board aircraft and I would check people to make sure they understood their job. Okay. And, and that they could do it. And in the Air Force, you get checked uh, once every 12 to 18 months on how you do your job. That probably um, is good to do. <laughs> well, we need to make sure that, number one, the, uh, the training is, is adequate to maintain qualification. Right. And the second thing is, is that uh, if you are deficient in training, then uh, we would recommend some additional training for you, and you would not be qualified to fly again unaccompanied until you got that training and was requalified. That I mean, and I would, I would, yeah, I, I would do that. I mean, and I did that maybe for about a year and a half, and 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 toward the end of my time when I was in AWACS, or excuse me, when I was at Tinker, I should say. That uh, I, I moved in, I got promoted to to such an extent that I I really couldn't do that. I was more uh, senior leadership, uh, more administrative, uh, doing things of this nature as a higher rank would require me to do, as opposed right. to being able to fly on a regular basis and do and do instruction, do flight examining, and things of that nature. Did you miss flying and instructing and all of that as you moved up? I did. You did? Very much. I did. Very yeah. much. I enjoyed it. I, I enjoyed being able to teach people new things, being able to, uh, to, to instruct them on stuff that had to be done. Right. Uh, and, and, and the higher rank I got, the less I was able to do that. And, and anybody who's been in, in air crew operations can tell you that we all do the same job on the jet, but as we progress in rank, uh, oftentimes it's more the administrative things that kind of pull you out of the seat on the jet yeah. that you have to do. More leadership stuff that you have to do with you, your peers, the people you fly with, more so than actually flying with them, even though in your heart that's what you want to do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't know why I... Just thought of this. The person who, uh, for Veterans Month, that is going to be on the episode for you was an AWACS crew chief. <laughs> so now I've got both sides of the job. <laughs> I got I got the guy in the plane and the guy that made the plane work for you. So, <laughs> all right, all right. Well, well, the guys who the the guys who make the plane work for us, they always believe the plane belongs in that. Yeah, he definitely believes the plane. He still thinks the plane belongs to him. So, <laughs> absolutely. I mean, and, and and I don't have a problem with that. They just give us the plane to go fly the mission. <laughs> yeah, you, when we come back, <laughs> yeah, you probably want them to feel that out. way because if they have ownership of it, they're going to make sure that it's always the best top notch that it could be versus some guy that's just like, yeah, and absolutely, absolutely, <laughs> they own the plane. That's fine with us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. There's probably, I don't know if it would still be considered classified. Um, what sort of thing could you maybe tell us that you did inside the AWACS plane? Because if if you don't know, AWACS is the, the plane that has the radar dish on top that spins, and it's quite a powerful radar, and there are a bunch of different sort of stations on the inside of it as they're flying. It's almost a mobile 
office, really, in a way, when you sort of look at them. Um, is there anything that you can share of what you would have done inside the plane? Well, I can tell you what I did on board sure. the aircraft and, and kind of give you an unclassified version of what everybody did on board the airplane. Of course, the people sitting on the flight deck, they flew the aircraft. Right. And that was that was the pilot, the co-pilot, flight engineer, and navigator. Right. Yeah. And then we had a person who ran all of the comm systems on board the aircraft. That actually was two people on that station. One would do the actual manipulation and management of comm on board the airplane, whereas the other individual would actually do the maintenance of the comm systems on the aircraft. Okay. And then we had a person that would be able to uh, manage the central computer systems on board the aircraft. And then there was one other individual who would manage the radar systems on board the aircraft. Okay. That was a single individual. And then in between those two positions there, we would have a number of operators, of which I would be one. And I would do, technically, we would break it up into three separate sections. There would be a surveillance section who would look at just surveilling all of the targets potential targets within the radar suite. That's okay. Where I, that's where I worked at. All right. Then you would have individuals who would do more focused requirements like controlling aircraft to intercept potential bad guys. These, right. would, be, <laughs> these would be weapons controllers. Yeah. Would be on board. And then on top of that, you would have surveillance with the section I was in. Weapons would be the section that I just described to you being in. And then you had just one individual who had managed both of them, and that was the mission crew commander. Okay. And he would kind of kind of redirect and integrate everything that was going on at that particular time. Now, within the surveillance section, you would have what is called an air surveillance officer. He would oversee the air surveillance technicians, which I was one of those, to direct what sections you're going to do surveillance on, how you were going to do it, and there would be probably one individual among those who would be doing that for the ASO that would be managing the what we call the data link system. Okay. And the and the data link system was the uh, was the capability of being able to designate targets and then transmit that information to ground stations or any other stations that were listening, that were linked into us, that could hear all the stuff that was going on, or see all the stuff. Because we had the capability of sending via data link individual targets to different, or if all, people that were participating in the network. Okay. So we, could share, we could share all that information with a number of other entities that were out there uh, linked up with us. So they could see it as well. Right. So I guess other planes, tanks, Navy ships, all of that, if they were in the network, you could give the info to all of them if need be. Well, well, tanks, no. <laughs> okay. I, was, I wasn't sure if like the tanks were part of it too. Um, no, no. I say no, that because no, I was in the first cab. So. <laughs> yeah, that, that, would, that would be far too, too low. Uh, let's say, yeah, it would be like to the um, battalion level. That we would share that information. Okay. 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 So yeah, that makes sense. So J Stars, for example, has the ability to share 
movement of ground systems with army units at the battalion level. Mm -hmm. So they could see that information, but at, at the squad level, at the, uh, at the, at the individual soldier level, they would never be able to see that, that type of information that, that it just wouldn't go, it just wouldn't mean anything for them, for them. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, because when we first moved to Tinker, my dad wasn't an AWACS unit, but he did all the flight plans, you know, the paperwork side of it. And it just occurred mm-hmm. to me, my dad probably did some of the paperwork on planes that you were in. Yeah, probably did. Good. Small world. <laughs> so, yes, so were you involved in, uh, I mean, the answer I'm assuming is going to be yes, you were probably involved in um, Desert Storm as a... Yes. AWACS, did you uh, go over to Saudi Arabia or that part of the world, maybe not Saudi Arabia, or did you guys just fly out of Germany or Tinker or? Well, uh, I wasn't involved in Desert Storm. I was I was back uh, managing uh, training for crew members that were going to get a Desert Storm. That were going to it. Yeah. Well, I guess that would make sense because at that point you're, you were probably a... E seven E eight at that point. Uh, e eight, yes. E eight, yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, at the tail end of uh, Desert Storm, I was E nine. E nine. Yes. Wow, that's that's uh, that's impressive. It it takes a lot to uh, <laughs> to to get to that point. So yeah, yeah. I I was kind of lucky. I was an E nine for eleven years. In that's the last, <laughs> in the last portion of my career. So yeah, that's a. What's that in the Air Force? A chief senior? You'll have to give me the rank. I can't. Because when I went, I knew all Air Force ranks as a kid. And then I went Army. And then I forgot the part of my brain that could know Air Force ranks morphed to Army ranks. I got you. So you were a command sergeant major to me. <laughs> uh, I was sergeant major. Yeah. E9 yeah. sergeant major. So yeah. think of me as a sergeant major that for the last 11 years of my life was sergeant major. or uh, master uh, petty officer. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. This is. I mean, we think we think in Navy up here in Virginia. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Based on where you guys live, so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you were in almost. That's that's a long time. Nineteen seventy-one. You said to ninety-six. No. no. Or two thousand one is when I retired. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So wow. For the last 11 years, before I retired in 2001, I was a chief master sergeant. That was probably a good year to maybe retire, <laughs> depending on the time of the year you retired. They, they, they wanted me to stay longer because they were short of E9s at that particular time. But I had been an E9 for 11 years, and it was time to go, I think. Well, I mean, you, you had done your, your time for the, for the country at that point. So it was it was time to open another chapter in my book. So yeah, yeah, I I understand that. I understand that. Yeah. Um it you're not probably going to believe this and apparently you and I have the same problem that Kenyatta and I have and we've we've gone over an hour <laughs> recording. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know you're probably going to have to cut back some of this stuff and, and do some editing or whatever it might be, but that's cool. I mean, it, it was good talking with you. I, 
I thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I, I'm glad you came on. Um, it was definitely interesting hearing uh, your career. A lot of people, you know, sort of start out in one field and they kind of stay that way, the same thing. And you kind of had the gambit of, <laughs> you know, multiple career paths and you retired as high as, and, well, maybe not technically as high as an enlisted person can go, but. I, I could go any I, higher. <laughs> well, I mean, you could have been the chief master sergeant of the Air Force. Technically, uh, that would uh, be higher. Yeah, well, that's another story. <laughs> that that that's another story, Jack. <laughs> yeah, no, nobody wants. Well, I mean, I guess one guy wants that job. Or <laughs> yeah, but. and I, I think it takes a special kind of individual to do that kind of kind of job. And I I know uh, people that personally that I that I admire and and worked with that can do that kind of job. But in, in my side of the world, I, I wanted to focus on being in the operational side of the world. Yeah. yeah. And doing that as to, as opposed to being someone who was mm, more political. Right. And, 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 and I have great respect for people who have, who have been, uh, 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 senior enlisted advisors uh, who have been chief mass sergeants of the Air Force and that sort of thing, and they can take this this huge gambit of of enlisted force and represent them at the various levels that they do. But I looked at it from a standpoint that I wanted to stay as close as I possibly could to the tip of the spear, as you had mentioned, right, so, and and be what we call a functional area manager and that's what i was yeah yeah and and that was kind of overseeing the the one alpha three career field excuse me the one alpha four career field the one alpha three career field doesn't exist anymore that they happens. were they were absorbed by the one alpha three community side of the house and that and and things happen like that i mean technology changes um requirements change in the Air Force or in any other military service and different uh, MOSs and AFSCs get absorbed into others. Right, right. And that's, and that's the way it is. Yeah, that is that is life life in the military. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming on and talking. I, as somebody that's just naturally curious and likes hearing stuff in people's life stories, um, I'm I'm super glad you came on. I thought it was quite uh, interesting. Um, I do think in the modern world, people tend to put a higher value on someone that's like an athlete or a celebrity. And I think everybody's life journey and story is every bit as important, if maybe not more. <laughs> and I like hearing that from from people. And then uh, also, you know, there there's you know a connection. Because obviously Kenyatta, but just sort of thinking about, you know, hey, my dad probably did type up some flight plans for planes that he was on. And then you also explained to me, you know, my dad's job, how that started out. Yeah. Um, something yeah. that I, I never, never knew. And um, so, yeah, I appreciate you coming on. I obviously thank you for your 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 time in the Air Force. Um, that. It's a lot of years. That was a big commitment and a lot of time away from your family that yeah. maybe civilians yeah. don't recognize. Yeah. Um, but uh, even still, I 
I think Kenyatta turned out all right, even when you were, you know, not home as much as you probably wanted. <laughs> yeah, and and and, and uh, I, I regret that at this point in my life. Uh, when I was doing the job back then, I, I I was young and I wasn't thinking too much about it. I yeah. was thinking about uh, doing my job, and serving my country, and yeah. And in the end, my country is not going to do much for me <laughs> as much as my family is going to do much for me at this point in my life right now. And That's so, true. And I'm, I'm glad that, that my daughter and my wife at the time understood um, uh, my commitment and what I was doing. And I was happy for that uh, and what they did for me and supported me in all of it. Yeah. So, yeah. But, I, um, I, I believe that the, the family at home of the service member is equally a part of their commitment to the country and they sacrifice for their country. Yes. But you maybe don't get the recognition for the sacrifice that the, the family in the rear makes as well. So that's, that's correct. You're right. You're absolutely right. And I don't, um, maybe it's cause I've been all sides, you know, <laughs> I was a dependent, I was in and then a dad. So maybe that's why I feel that way. I don't know, but yeah. Um, uh, I definitely thank you for your service, and I thank you for coming on. I, I really enjoyed having you on. Well, I, I thank you for having me on. Uh, it, it gets a chance for an old warrior to kind of <laughs> recount all of his war stories and all that other good stuff. And if if anybody else can take some sort of some understanding uh, and and even some enjoyment from some of it, that's 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 good for me. I like that. Well. Thank you. I appreciate it. And I'm sure people will enjoy it. <laughs> okay. Hey, thanks so, for your time, Jack. Uh, thanks for coming on. Um, All right. And with that, I'm going to end the podcast as I always do. And everyone knows that I'm not particularly good at this, but that doesn't mean I can't strive for it. So everybody remember, try to live your life in a way that would make Bob Ross proud. Thank you for listening to Musings of an ADD Mind. If you enjoyed this podcast, or even if you didn't, please hit the subscribe or follow button. This podcast is a production of Hyperfocus Media.